0: Hi, this is Andrew and this is Keen on, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it's Thursday, January the 11th, 2024. Keen is on the road as it is wont to be in early January every year in Munich at the incomparable DLD show, bringing together some of the world's leading technologists, thinkers, entrepreneurs and intellectuals. And one man who I'm thrilled to see at DLD is an old friend, Martin Puchner. He's a professor of comparative literature and English at Harvard University. He's been on the show a couple of times before. He's not a man who has focused his intellectual career on the impact of technology on culture. It's something he's giving more and more thought to. He just gave a speech this uh, at DLD this afternoon here asking whether or not AI can produce culture. So Martin, let's start there. Can uh, AI produce culture?
1: Um, it, in some sense, culture has been waiting for the arrival of a new alien intelligence ever since Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein and the The Czech playwright Karl Czapak coined the term robot in a play called RUR in 1920. But I actually think that that's the wrong way to think about AI. I think, despite its power, that it is best understood as a tool. And so we have to think about what kind of tool it is and how we wield it. Now, when I say it's a tool, I don't mean to belittle it, because I think tools have defined who we are as humans. We have been using tools. To transform the world and in the process these tools have transformed us you know there's the saying that to a man with a hammer everything looks like a nail and i think that is in a sense true it's usually used as a dismissive uh, comment don't focus so much on the kinds of problems this tool can solve but i think it actually expresses a uh, more fundamental truth that tools transform the way we see the world they in some sense transform us And I think the same will be true of AI. Now, in the discussions about whether AI is a tool or more than a tool, I think one of the key terms that's often used is
2: emergent properties uh, in the sense that we don't... ...human tool use. They emerge in the
1: interaction between humans and their tools. So, you know, I've just said that to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's generally true, maybe of most people. But if you give a hammer to someone like Michelangelo and a chisel and a block of marble, he doesn't see a nail. He sees the statue of David. So that's in a sense, an emergent property. And so that's how I like to think about uh, AI as, as a tool that we wield through prompts, through cascades of prompts and responses and prompts that respond to the responses and correct and misunderstandings. And that in that interaction, I, I, I would focus on that interaction in order to understand how we humans wield this tool as opposed to the hammer, and therefore how we will transform the world and ourselves through it.
0: Let me play around with that metaphor of the hammer and the tool, Um, Martin, to perhaps one might suggest that to a professor of comparative literature, uh, everything looks like culture. (laughs) So, just as you very nicely defined tools. What about culture? Isn't culture in itself a tool, or is it a separate category?
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's something that humans produce with tools. Um, I, you know, sometimes people say that, think that humans, you know, sort of create art and culture out of the, out of their the depth of their soul and feelings, and say that AI just imitates art. Uh, but I think that's actually sort of a misunderstanding. So in this book, Culture, the Story of Us, that we have talked uh, uh, about, Andrew, a, a little while ago, it came clear to me that culture is a vast recycling project, project, process. Uh, art is made from other art in through different ways. Uh, and so I think it's wrong to think of AI as just imitating art. Uh, if you think about how artists are educated, they um, they are fed that there's a certain input. They are fed a certain canon of art. They are usually selective. Um, they're highly contested because they're selective, but this is how artists are trained. That's how artists become art. AI works a little differently. It's also fed. There is a certain input. Uh, it works, of course, through training data, and so that there's a question of what's included in the training data, what's not included. Uh, so, different forms of input and different forms of, of output. But uh, I think the key, again, is both understanding the nature of, of this tool, as opposed to you know, AI, as opposed to the hammer, and then understanding how we as humans learn to use it, how we are educating ourselves in how to write prompts, even when we create images, for example, right now we need It's a very verbal process process, uh, through which we create images and we have to, you know, correct and and think about how to verbally describe the kinds of images we want image creation, AI, to create. And so that's how I like to think of it.
0: That may be the art, the the words or the vision or the the language we use to describe what we want, which maybe is what culture is. Uh, Earlier today, uh, Martin, I'm not sure if you saw this, the very distinguished Chinese artist um, uh, Ai Weiwei uh, suggested that um, any art that can be easily copied by AI is, to quote his work, his language, meaningless. Hmm. Does he have a point? Is there meaning in that observation?
1: You know, copying. I'm not as. And ent- I mean, I I I understand where he's coming from. I hadn't heard that. Um, it's been interesting to me to see what what types of things AI is good at copying and what it isn't. So in the, in the realm of verbal art, of literature, which I mostly work in, it's been interesting to see that AI is relatively good at creating with generic prompts, Let's like for example the sonnet. The sonnet is a clearly defined form of poetry with rules, you know, how many lines and so on and so forth. And so this is something that AI is very good at. You know, people have been playing around, write a sonnet about the DLD conference or something like that. And it's, it's pretty good at understanding these tool, uh, this form. And so you can say that actually, in a sense, genres are meant to be imitated. They are this kind of form that, that's replicable and that replicates itself. So I don't think that imitation or the ability to imitate something is necessarily bad. It's part of, how culture works. Yeah, I
0: mean, it's the, it's the age-old argument about whether or not culture is stealing. And yeah. From Steve Jobs to Bob Dylan, perhaps to, to Shakespeare and, and all the other great writers and artists, they're all in the business of imitating, borrowing, some people might say stealing. Is, is that true to that, Martin, I, for you as a professor of culture, comparative <laughs> literature?
1: I agree. I think it is all a big mash-up of you know culture, I think it is stealing uh, uh, in in a, in a positive sense, in that you use art to make more art and different art, and you get inspired. You know, to put it more positively, if you're in art school and you love an artist or a writer and you adore a writer, you try to imitate, and that's how you learn. And of course, ultimately, you you're trying to go beyond that. Uh, but imitation is. Uh, I think it's not a negative thing, and and because I'm always, I, I'm a historian, uh, so I always think about the history of of these things, and it's striking to me that originality as as a value, as something we expect artists to produce, is a relatively recent uh, uh, value or aspiration uh, or expectation. For a long time, imitation you know, for example, being able to imitate the the ancients was a highly prized uh, uh, quality.
0: In the history of culture, modern history, as you touched on, Martin, was this cult of the original, this fetishization of originality, was it part of that romantic reaction to the enlightenment?
1: I, I totally agree that romanticism is sort of the the most extreme form of originality, or where really our idea of originality comes from, so I think it was partially a reaction to to the enlightenment and the the ideal of the of antiquity that that went uh, with it to some extent and and to create the the notion of the genius, the artistic genius comes from romanticism, and that is very much associated with uh, originality that you. You don't lo- what you learn in the art Academy is to imitate the ancients but you need to leave the art Academy you have to you know, the, the romantic artists the, the poets started to imitate the way common people spoke they took long walks in the lake district the English romantic poets and so finding other sources of inspiration that
2: didn't have to do with technical imitation of models became First, Martin.
0: When we live in times where we idealize the great artist, we have great artists, so Beethoven, for example, and that obsession with the great art of, of the nineteenth century. Or, or or am I trivializing this? Are there always great artists independent of broader intellectual currents?
1: Well that you know it's interesting that of course the fact that we even know the names of artists is something that really uh, became the standard, expected form in the Renaissance. I mean, we know
2: some artists by name. So the whole idea that there is a single person creator Who then becomes the
1: kind of place of originality or the 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 thing that generates originality that alone is is just a few hundred years old in in a sense as as the uh, as the expected uh, uh place where generation where originality happens uh so so i don't think that's like so always if you look into history Change, I think, is the dominant theme and, and usually our expectations about art, what counts as art, who produces art, uh, are more recent than we think.
0: Yeah, I just there, there was a, a wonderful exhibition of, of Botticelli drawings and paintings mm. in San Francisco and I hadn't quite realized how Botticelli himself came out or emerged out of the fog of the Middle Ages, mm. one of these original artist. So might one argue, Martin, in terms of history repeating itself, that generative AI, which is a return to an age where the notion of individual genius is replaced by uh, the the ideal of of common wisdom, of, of no individual perhaps being that more creative than any other.
1: I think that's a great idea, Andrew. I, I agree. I think that's, and it's been true of the internet in general, where sharing and adaptation and mashups have been the dominant form even before the um, advent of generative AI. And as people have been saying, I think from various perspectives, generative AI is just sort of supercharging what, what's what been happening uh, with, with the internet uh, uh, anyway. And I I like that formulation a lot, this return to a non-individual, non-originality-based form. The other thing I would say is that I've been fascinated with, with the hallucination of, mm. of AI, and everyone, even today here at, at DLDF, almost everyone has been warning about hallucination. Yeah, Ken
0: Cook here who I want to get on this show, and old friend who's been on the show. Exactly, there's something all too human about hallucination.
1: A- exactly, it? and so, but I, th- I mean, I, I totally get when it comes to you know, factual information that you have to double check and that it, hallucination can be a problem. But when we think about, as we are doing right now, thinking about AI as a tool for creating art, I love hallucination. I mean, that's, that's another term that the romantics that you mentioned earlier loved. Imagination, hallucination, you know, dreams. I mean, those, the, the, the term hallucination mostly meant as a kind of negative. Uh, suddenly uh, looks very different when you think when you think of it as something that AI generates uh, 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 based on certain prompts not by itself but based on human prompts.
0: Might also all this be a return to more of a a spirituality in culture we talked about how the enlightenment um, reflected the beginnings of the notion of, a, of individualism in art is this thing we're creating this artificial intelligence is it our collective spirit our will mm. wrapped up in some weird hallucination hallucinatory spirituality
2: mm
1: I, I like that I think that's a it's a good question I mean you uh, Ken Kukye just gave a talk where he thought about spirituality mm. as that which humans preserve and what is genuine to humans rather than uh, AI but uh, I I like your formulation that uh, as a kind of collective enterprise
2: uh, that uh, uh, you know it's a elect- Texts, images and, and, and music is, is
1: dominant. Dance or the performing arts are much harder to fit into a data set. So, you know, it's, it's limited, but it, it is collective. I think you're right. Uh, um, and, and we have to get used to that kind of collective agent, perhaps.
0: Some people might be watching this, morning. think it's all very well. This Harvard professor, he has tenure, he doesn't have to worry about selling books or songs or paintings. Um, as you know, there are a number of court cases from journalists, writers, uh, graphic artists, they've been on the show, suing these new platforms for stealing their content. Do they have any point? I mean, if put yourself in, in their position, You're, you have the security of tenure at Harvard, uh should artists be concerned and do in some senses these these le- legal cases uh, do they have some credibility
1: yeah you know it's it's actually for me not an academic issue because my, my, some of my books are part of the pile 3 data set that was used for uh, training uh, open ai and that's the, that are part of the lawsuit uh, so it's I get your point about job security, but my publishers want to sell books, and, and so that, that at least one book is part of the uh, the lawsuit. So absolutely, I mean that you know it, it's I think part of the larger con- uh, uh, conversation about content on the on the internet and the way in which the the cost or the price or the value of content has been plummeting. Uh, um, for the most part, and created a kind of winner-take-all uh, uh, situation. Over the last
0: 25 years, we've always been promised the democratization of culture, but actually Why? what we've got is free culture, which doesn't Why? certainly doesn't benefit uh, anyone who wants to make a living by writing or making movies or singing songs.
1: I, I totally agree. So this, this question of compensation is is really important and you know you mentioned Harvard there are a lot of artists who work at Harvard and at institutions and I think the one way we have to think more about is creating institutions uh, this too is a is a return in some sense to the way artists were uh, you know employed or uh, uh, subsidized by by courts by kings by popes by mm. by temples and and maybe we are returning to a also in economic terms to an uh an older model of sponsorship uh if the market that allowed artists sort of emerge from these models of sponsorship is no longer working because of the dynamics you you describe
0: do we want to return to that martin you're at harvard harvard's been in the news because of. Uh, Billionaires Behaving Badly, which always seems to be an appropriate headline these days. Bill Ackman seems to be single-handedly trying to bring down the entire institution. Should artists have to rely on a Bill Ackman, an Elon Musk, um, a Bill Gates even, to... uh, to write their songs? Do we want to return to that 16th or 17th century model?
1: It's it's a good question and, you know, clearly there are huge disadvantages to that. Um, in terms of Harvard, I think Harvard will weather the storm, uh, and so these institutions. Harvard weather's
0: all storms, <laughs> not <in our team. laughs> exactly. The problem is there all the other shit. I think.
1: Uh, true. Well, we'll we'll see. Um, I you know also I I have real problems with the resource hoarding that. Ivy League institutions and some of these elite art institutions do i believe in outreach um so i i and there are huge disadvantages to i think all uh, to the market driven model to the sponsorship model i I think that uh it's also clear that certain arts are more easy to uh uh, to support through a certain way than to others some genres more than others poets have almost never been able to live in the marketplace
0: I don't want my daughter I don't know if you have any daughters Martin but I don't think any of us want our daughters marrying poets or (laughs) for that matter our sons (laughs) Uh, Harvard's in the news on a couple of fronts uh, um, for all this intellectual stuff but also for the the rise of intolerance I wonder, we seem to have two parallel things going on in culture at the moment we've got this AI story that we've talked about that's dominating the news at DLD and we also have the rise of disinformation and intolerance and hatred, are they connected or are these parallel phenomena?
1: It's uh, it's a complicated question, Andrew, and I'm, I'm not sure I have a, a clear answer.
0: Well, you're a historian of culture. In these transformational moments when it comes to how we use our tools, um, does history tend to be divisive and often bloody? After all, the invention of the printing press could some of the worst bloodshed in human history.
1: And some of the worst misinformation. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I do think about the, what happened in the aftermath of the printing press. Uh, you could describe it as a replacement of one type of institution and authority, uh, you know, namely courts and the church, let's say, with a different kind of authority, a more populist authority of, of printing networks and... And, and people like Martin Luther, being able to suddenly speak directly to millions of people, which, which he did. Uh, and so the way I think, try to think about it, but it's a kind of long-term uh, uh, a thought, is that it took a few hundred years for the printing press, for these revolutionary and very unsettling effects of the printing press to to somehow move into a more stable, or into a kind of equilibrium where we had the emergence of trusted newspapers and publishers and so on and so forth, where we felt like there, there, there was a new form of authority that emerged in the Gutenberg world, in the world created by Gutenberg.
2: And so we are living through the unsettling. AI is gonna be a big new challenge with, with that. Can AI
0: help with this? Uh, and and I, I don't think this is an exaggerate, uh, exaggeration, the existential crisis of the humanities in the university, Bef- even before AI, before the internet, the humanities were in trouble. Again, you don't need me telling you that. Yeah. Uh, fewer and fewer kids study English or history. Uh, they're all doing engineering and STEM subjects. Can AI spark um, a revival of the humanities, or might it actually be the final nail in the coffin?
2: AI is coming to some extent for the
1: humanities because it's so good at writing and writing, critical writing is, you know, one of the skills that transferable skills that we teach. But it's also coming for engineering because it's so good at coding. So, you know, there are some people who predict actually that it will, that engineering will be affected much more severely because it's a much larger piece of the pie right now, as you point out, than the humanities. And that in some sense that uh, at least some of the values and skills that we teach, creativity, lateral thinking, uh, uh, writing that's better than AI, if we actually teach it, I think we have to get better at that. But I think there may be an opening for us in the humanities to say that as certain kinds of engineering jobs, let's say are, 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 are replaced by AI, are, are some of the, the, the skills we in the humanities teach are gonna become more valuable. I can see that uh, scenario, but I also think that we in the humanities have actually to change a little bit on how we, how we teach. I think we have sort of put ourselves into a corner, uh, a kind of doctrinaire corner that hasn't helped us very much. So I, I think that the challenge of, of, of AI may, could actually prompt a uh, revival of the humanities. But maybe
2: that's wishful thinking. Well, there certainly needs to be more. What do you make of events like DLD and the way in which technology is
0: truly transforming the world, that it seems to hold all the cards, the the tools that you talk about, the tools that are transforming culture?
1: you know just speaking very personally it's been super interesting for me to be at events like these in part because it's a it's a different way of talking it's a different way of thinking and it gets me out of the humanities corner in some of in some way and i like being the sort of representative
2: or advocate of the humanities in in this text world Thought maybe conceptual thought about these underlying uh,
1: issues like consciousness, agency, imitation, create creativity that that are clearly people here in the tech world are thinking about. So it's it's been uh, really interesting. And you and are one of the people who helped me come here. So uh, it, it's 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 been a, a great ride. But but I also agree that I both wish that there were more humanists, but also, self-critically, that there are so many humanists who wouldn't even be interested to be here because they already have certain preconceptions. And that goes back to the humanity sort of being very defensive and, and sort of off into their corner and doing a lot of navel-gazing. And I think that's, that's something that I think we need to change.
0: data reflection of the medieval world. Finally, um, Martin, Uh, AI is bound to dominate the headlines in 2024. That's inevitable, as as much as anything can be inevitable. What would you like to see happen over the next year when it comes to the way in which AI is and isn't integrated into our culture?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I'm uh, working on an uh, online writing course uh, that's supposed to be scalable, it's widely available, and I'm trying to figure out which part of writing, just to name one example, uh, can be outsourced to AI because I think it's clear that uh, AI is putting a floor under bad writing. it's it it's produces grammatical, very organized, very clear information uh, uh, gathering and and, and, and infor- informative writing. But there are also certain forms of writing that that can't be outsourced that where where the process of writing is really a process of thinking of critical thinking so it's something that i struggle with and i don't have a clear answer yet Um, but i think writing just being one example of us humans having to learn how to wield this tool and learning i think over the next year and the next many years how this tool will also transform us